Hi there, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the editor of High Country News, broadcasting from the studios of our partner KVNF in Paonia, Colorado. On today's episode, we have a crime caper from the dark forests of the Pacific Northwest. This story, which we just put to bed in the upcoming issue of the magazine, has everything. A crime, a chase, a culprit, even a patsy. Uh, and here to help us walk through the story is frequent contributor Ben Goldfarb. Welcome, Ben. Hi, Brian. And our executive director and publisher, Paul Larmer. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Nice to be here. Okay, so every great mystery story starts the same way, with a crime scene and a crime scene investigator. Uh, in this case, those aren't quite what you'd think. Ben, you spent a long time reporting on this story, so why don't you start where your story starts, in a place called the Slaughterhouse? So the slaughter, the story of the slaughterhouse starts in late winter of 2012 uh, with a Forest Service officer named Ron Malamphy. Uh, and Ron Malamphy, since so Ron Malamphy had worked as an officer with the Forest Service since 2000, and for about that long, he had been tracking this group of timber poachers. Um, the timber poachers were after a tree called big leaf maple, um, which is a, a deciduous tree. Um, who's, which is not, it's not worth, it's not worth very much. It's not, it's not like Douglas fir or cedar. Uh, it's not a very valuable tree, except for those rare instances in which big leaf maple contains something called figure. About one in every 20 big leaf maple trees contains figure. Figure is basically, it's this beautiful pattern that, that occurs in the grain of the wood, which guitar makers love to use in the body of electric guitars. Most big leaf maple trees don't contain this, they're not worth very much, but the occasional tree that does contain the figure uh, is extremely valuable. So since about 2001, this officer, Ron Malampi, had been pursuing this group of timber poachers who were cutting down uh, big leaf maple trees in Gifford Pinchot National Forest in Southwest Washington, which is illegal. You can't take the leaf maple from national forests. Um, so after years and years of, of pursuing these timber poachers, totally fruitlessly, Melamphy finally got the tip that led him to this place called the Slaughterhouse. And the Slaughterhouse is basically what it sounds like. It was this, this giant clearing where a, a handful of big leaf maple trees had been just totally mutilated, cut down, chopped apart. The, the valuable parts were taken out. The, the, the not-so-valuable parts were just left there to rot. Um, you know, one federal prosecutor would say later that it looked like a bomb had gone off. Everything was covered in sawdust. Um, and, you know, for, for Ron Malamphy, this was, this was his big break. You know, he'd been following these guys for a decade. I mean, at one point, they messed with the, the, the brake lines on his truck. Um, they loosened the, the lug nuts on his, on his tires. You know, he and, he and this gang of timber poachers had, had had this kind of cat and mouse chase going for a really long time. Well, hold on, um, because I want to back up, because yeah, he's sure. one cop for how much area? Or, you know, he's sort of like an investigator for how, how much area. Right. So he, so Ron Malanthi was the officer for the Cowlitz Valley Ranger District, which is about 500,000 acres um, in the Gifford Pinchot National Forest. So you can kind of imagine a single cop patrolling an area uh, that's almost twice the size of Los Angeles. And this is just an incredibly dangerous job. You know, he's out there by himself. The nearest backup is three hours away. Everybody he meets in the woods is carrying a gun or a knife. Um, 
In 2008, a, a Forest Service officer on the Olympic Peninsula was, was murdered uh, by a, a tree trimmer. Um, so this is a, a super dangerous job. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, he's got no backup out there. It's, it, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty intense profession for What's, sure to be a Forest Service officer. You, you spend some time with him, right? What's he like? Uh, he's he's an interesting guy for sure. He's um, he's he's really big. First of all, he looks he looks like he can he can take take care of himself, um, and uh, you know he's pretty he's pretty gruff. But he's he's a he's a woodsman. You know he's a, he's a guy who grew up hunting and fishing, and uh, you know cares about the sustainable use of natural resources. You know that was the the thing that kind of got to him here was he felt like these people had no respect for the resource or for sustainable management of the resource. Um, so, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of an, an old school hunting, fishing, you know, Gifford Pinchot kind of guy. And so when we say that, Paul, what does that mean in, in the context of the Pacific Northwest? What kind of a world is this guy who can take care of himself sort of living in? What kind of uh, economic environment? What is the Pacific Northwest like for this guy? Yeah, I mean, if he, you know, growing up anytime post-World War II in the Pacific Northwest, timber was king. And, uh, you know, after cutting all the private forests, they went after the public forests. And the Forest Service at the time was very willing, like, we're going to help you cut. But over time, and especially going through the, 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 the era when we discovered that there wasn't much old growth trees left and that there should be environmental constraints, the Forest Service adopted a more sustainable approach. And it sounds like this guy was right in line with that. Like, we can't cut every last tree here. And, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a hard scrabble place. It's economically depressed right now. There's a lot of guys out of work who might want to poach trees. Right. So that kind of leads us to our, yeah, we have this sort of hapless victim uh, in these uh, maple trees who are uh, yet overlooked for a really long time. Um, and there's a part in your story been here where sort of we like we discover this sort of crime scene. It's like the bomb went off, um, mutilated trees, and and uh, in the middle of it is this one investigator, this lone investigator. Uh, but actually, if you really want to understand big leaf maple poaching, you have to start with Carlos Santana. Why? Right. So big leaf maple for a long time was was considered a weed tree basically it's this it's this deciduous tree which is growing in these largely coniferous forests right it's it's the one sort of hardwood among all these pine trees not the one but one of the few hardwood um, among all these pine trees um, and you know landowners didn't like it you know stuff stuff like like dug fir and cedar you know these are these nice really durable straight strong trees that are are good for homes and for ships ships and masts um, you know, and, and maple, by contrast, you know, it's not quite as durable. And it's, it was basically considered a weed, you know, so landowners would, would just cut it all down unthinkingly. They'd even hire forestry consultants to basically eradicate this stuff. You know, one, one maple mill owner um, told me that, uh, you know, that, that nobody even knows how to grow it, really, because all of the silviculture for a long time was just aimed at eradicating it. You know, nobody, they, they know how to kill it, but not how to grow it. Um, but then... In, in the 80s, people started figuring out that, that one in every 20 big leaf maple trees or so contains this pattern figure, um, which looks really good in electric guitars. And it was really Carlos Santana, the great, fantastic rock guitarist um, who popularized big leaf maple in guitars. You know, he played this a Paul Reed Smith guitar, a maple popped Paul Reed Smith. They played it at the Grammys and uh, it basically blew up, you know, and, and uh, all of a sudden everybody wanted big leaf maple. And uh, mills started popping up, um, you know, lots of lots of these out of work woodsmen who Paul described 
um, suddenly found themselves with a, with a new economic opportunity. Um, so this, this big legal market for big leaf maple took off, uh, but simultaneous to that, a black market also also arose. Right. So it should be clear that it's it's not always illegal. So it wasn't that like Carlos Santana was jamming out on uh, you know on an uh, illegally constructed guitar of some kind um, necessarily, right. um, but that there were legal ways to obtain this. But pretty pretty soon, it's obvious where there's there are more of these trees which are in these protected areas that um malum fee is sort of patrolling and you know what i thought was interesting too was um he's he's baffled for a while right he's he's yeah this sort of this cat and mouse thing he can't figure out what's going on but um you know you followed the case really uh step by step uh in your story and there's a point in 2012 where uh, Malum Fee, he has an informant, right, who's sort of helping walk him through through this. So maybe talk a little bit about this relationship with the informant and how that sort of changed the investigation. Yeah, so one important thing to keep in mind is that um, at the same time that this, that this big leaf maple market was taking off, you know, meth became became a big thing in the Pacific Northwest. You know, so off so and those those two crimes kind of kind of became linked. You know, that lots of the people who were poaching big leaf maple were doing it to make money to to uh, fuel a meth addiction. Um, right. So what they would do is you you go and you cut down. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm sorry. So you go you cut down the tree. You slot you like basically hack a slab out of it that has this figure that has this patterning, and then you can take it and sell it to a mill right away for, you know, 50 to 100 or a few hundred bucks, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and then you take that money and, and um, you know, and then you, you buy meth, unfortunately. Um, I mean, people, people even call the tree meth maple. That's, that's a, a, okay. a nickname for so it So that's a very, very um, clear uh, relationship there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so basically what, what happened was that, was that Ron Melanthi, the, the Forest Service officer, uh, he, got, he got an anonymous tip. Um, the tip led him to an informant. Uh, the informant was was in trouble with the law on a on an unrelated charge, um, which had to do with with dress. Um, and you know, the informant basically asked for asked for a deal, you know, or or, or thought that cooperating with with Ron Melanfi and Phil Huff, who was the the special agent from the Forest Service assigned to the case. Who thought that cooperating um, with on the maple poaching case might might help the informant uh, strike a deal on this other unrelated charge? Right. So this um, is basically just like any any episode of crime scene investigators that you watch or any cop show. You gotta you gotta flip the guy. You gotta find the weak link, <laughs> and you gotta like put, right. you gotta put the squeeze on him and flip him. And so right. <laughs> this guy you exactly. flipped, <laughs> and yeah. uh, but yeah. it's like it the, yeah, the crime is not tough to flip. Yeah. You're right, yeah, right. He's yeah, yeah. He's like yeah, sure. I'll I'll show you where these guys are cutting down stuff. <laughs> uh, <and> there's <laughs> right. a, there's this great line. Uh, you know, he predicted the kind of trash that they would find in a clearing, which would be empty cans of Miller beer. So like you know, yeah. our our criminals have like an mo <laughs> where they go and drink Miller beer and like cut down <laughs> these poor maples. <laughs> Yeah, These big yeah, leaf maples are much. just waiting, you know, <clears throat> lambs to the slaughter for these Millers swilling. It, uh, it's a trio, <laughs> basically, right? We sort of we kind of we kind of come to some suspects, right? Who are, who are they? Right. So uh, so eventually, so so Melanthi and Huff, you know, they they interview this this big circle of of uh, kind of people involved in this in this large maple poaching gang, um, and. Uh, 
you know, it's, I mean, it's th these these folks weren't too hard to to flip, as you put it, Brian. You know, I mean, Ron Ron told me that there's there's no honor among thieves. You know, that they were they were pretty pretty willing to rat on themselves. And finally, um, you know, they kind of narrowed the circle to these these three ma maple poachers. Um, these these three guys, Mullins, Miller, and Justice are their are their last names. Not, not the Sopranos, um, and, you know, obviously. Not the, not the Sopranos. <laughs> Those guys are yeah. hard to flip. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. This is not. Yeah, this is not the most the most high wedge crime family, um, and uh, yeah, you know they're they're sort of the they're sort of the ringleaders, um, and that and that eventually leads the Forest Service to the person that they're selling the wood to to the mill, um, which is which takes the case in a whole different direction. Right. That's a guy named Harold Klaus Coopers. Is that right? That's Cooper's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so yeah, tell us about Cooper's because he, here we have the most fascinating part of your story because here we have what I call the the patsy in a way, uh, uh, or at least you know, here's here's a guy who's you know he, he's a very complicated character in your story. So let's let's take a second and talk about uh, Harold Klaus Cooper's. Yeah, so I think that one one important thing is that so you know so so for. For a long time, the Forest Service has been investigating lots of different maple poaching cases, right? And, you know, and, and not just the Forest Service, too. I mean, local sheriff's departments, you know, lots of different agencies work on maple poaching. Um, and almost invariably, they, the people they arrest are, are the cutters themselves, right? The people who are actually going out in the forest at night cutting down these trees. Meanwhile, you know, the, the, the people higher up the supply chain, the mill owners, the guitar manufacturers... You know, they they've basically walked scot free. Um, you know, it's it's almost impossible to prove that that these people that the, that the mill owners um, knowingly bought stolen products. So it's really hard to bust one of these one of these middlemen. Um, and you know, for a long time, the Forest Service has wanted to do exactly that because the, you know the idea is that as long as there are mill owners out there who are willing to buy the stolen product. You know, there'll always be demand for it, and, and it'll be impossible to really ever ever control the problem. Um, so you know, so for a long time they, they've been they've been looking to get one of these mill owners. Um, so that's where that's where Cooper's comes in. So Cooper's is an interesting guy because he actually has this very long background in law enforcement himself. He worked for a decade for the Department of Corrections in Washington State. His wife still works for corrections. Uh, his father worked for corrections. His his father-in-law was a, a highway patrolman. Um, so, you know, he's not exactly the first guy that you would peg for, a, you know, a maple smuggler. Um, right. This is a guy who presumably knows what the inside of a prison looks like. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a, exa exactly. You know, and, and he's like, you know, and, and he, uh, you know, he would lecture at risk youth, you know, trying to keep him on the straight and narrow. You know, he was he was, uh, you know, pretty a pretty law abiding guy by all accounts um, until this until this case came along. Yeah. So, how did they sort of how did they develop the case uh, with him? Yeah. So, so in April of 2012, the Forest Service visited Cooper's at his mill for the first time, um, and you know, and they basically said, you know, hey, we've we've kind of traced this this stolen wood. Um, you know, we 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 know that they're that they're that these guys are selling wood to your mill, um, and uh, you know, they just asked him a few questions about how about how he operated his mill and and that sort of thing, um, and. The next day, Cooper's sent um, one of these agents an email basically saying, you know, hey, I don't I don't want I'm very disturbed to learn that I'm buying stolen product. Um, you know, I don't want to be doing this, but I will continue to buy stolen wood if you think it would help the investigation. 
Um, so, you know, he, so here he is basically, you know, basically saying, you know, hey, I don't want to be part of this crime, but I, I'm willing to help you guys. So that, you know, so that makes him seem like kind of a, you know, a well-meaning innocent. Um, on the other hand, you know, he was, he was, at that point, he was woefully out of compliance with all of the, all of the um, sort of state forestry laws. You know, there's, there's this permit that you have to get. If you're a mill owner, you have to, you have to get this permit from your seller every single time you buy a load of, of maple. Um, and Cooper's was not, he, was, he wasn't using these permits. He had made up his own non-legally binding permit, just like a, a kind of a, a handwritten thing um, that, you know, that had, no, that had no enforcement power. And actually when, when Ron Melanfi traced Cooper's handwritten permits, he found that, that one of, the, you know, one of the, the people on the permit was like a, you know, sort of like a local drifter who lived in an RV and didn't even have maple on his land. So you know, clearly, it's not, it's not like Cooper's was doing any kind of due diligence. Right. Um, he's, he's basically saying, like, you know, the same thing the Internet says, like, are, you know, are you 21 years of age? Click here. He's just asking people <laughs> to sort of, like, verify themselves that they aren't um, illegal. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so on one hand, you know, he, he says all the right things to the fire service. But on the other hand, um, you know, he's, he's clearly in violation of the law, which, which makes things kind of complicated. So I, I should note that uh, "woefully out of compliance" was the name of my high school band. No, just kidding. It really wasn't. <laughs> was your what, 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 gen- what genre was, was "woefully out of compliance"? That, that sounds like a ska band. Yeah, we, yeah, it was with bebop. Did you have ska. an electric guitar? With it was actually it? scat. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's just a kind of uh, yeah. So to, to sort of bring this along, then you know, he's here's a guy who uh, you know he's at least familiar with law enforcement and thinks that he's helping. Um, he's like, okay, well, I'll keep doing this for you guys. Um, uh, but they busted him. Uh, how did that happen? Yeah. So, you know, I think that a big, I think that a big question is, you know, does, does he, and I I don't know the answer to this question, but does he, does he genuinely think that he's helping? Um, or, you know, is he trying to cover his own ass, um, while he continues to, to profit wildly off the sale of maple, you know, and that's, I mean, he, you know, his his claim is that he's helping, you know, and there's and there's certainly he 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 was helpful in some ways, right? He, I mean, he, at one point, you know, he went out into the woods with the Forest Service to examine some of the cut sites, um, and uh, you know, help them sort of interpret what they were seeing. You know, he sent them the occasional email when one of the suspected poachers would show up at his shop. Um, you know, so he was he was being helpful. Uh, at the same time, you know, he was also selling uh, about a half million dollars of stolen maple. Um, yeah, you said during, in the story that it was like two hundred percent profit on some some huge right. percentage. Yeah, yeah, he's making he's making a two hundred percent profit on this stuff. You know, I mean, basically what he does is you know he's kind of a middleman, right? They they bring in they bring in the wood. He kind of scans it for defects. Uh, you know, dries it in a kiln, saws it down, and then sends it to um, you know to guitar manufacturers, um, including Paul Reed Smith Guitars, which is the same which is the same guitar manufacturer that supplies Carlos Santana. So it all kind of comes full circle, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, so, so basically, um, eventually, um, they, they busted him, you know, they, they, um, you know, they, they indicted him along with the, the kind of the three, the three main cutters, Muller, Muller, Mullins, Miller, and Justice. Um, and, uh, yeah, he ended up, he ended up serving six months in prison and he was the, he was the first, the first ever, mill owner um to to serve time in prison for violating this this law called the Lacey Act 
um, yeah. for, for use the first is kind of kind of a complicated formulation. But the first ever mill owner to to serve time for violating the for violating the Lacey Act for a for a domestic timber sale. If you're just joining us, you're listening to West Obsessed, where we at High Country News discuss issues critical to the American West. Today we're talking about a particular case of timber poaching in the Pacific Northwest. I'm joined by our executive director and publisher, Paul Larmer, and I'm joined by our frequent contributor via Skype, Ben Goldfarb. So, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about the sort of environment that led to the Lacey Act and the history of that and why that sort of ties in here? Well, Ben, you've got a lot of this in your story, too. The Lacey Act wasn't really targeted at vegetative uh, species for a long time. Uh, and it's more, you know, you think of it in context of international trade of wildlife. Uh, and maybe you could give us a little of that background about, you know, how the Lacey Act started including trees. Sure. So, yeah, so the, the Lacey Act really came into play. Uh, it was passed in 1900. So this is, so 1900 is kind of, it's the end of what historians call the age of extermination. Um, so the age of, that's, that's sort of like the latter half of the 19th century, right? Everybody's out there killing beavers, bison, passenger pigeons, you know, all kinds of fish. Um, it's, it's this time period when, you know, we're just going wild, killing things. When America um, was great again. <laughs> when it, that, was, that was when America was, was greatest, I would say, is when, when we basically eradicated the bison. I think that was, that was our, our finest High achievement watermark. as a nation. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so finally... You know, it was, it was like we like awoke from this, you know, this century long bloodlust and we're like, oh, crap, you know, we're, we're basically killing everything. Um, so they, they passed this law. What it, what it did was it said you don't have to pull the trigger yourself to get busted for illegal wildlife trafficking. So even if you're just kind of the guy selling the, you know, the load of, of egrets across state lines, you can go to prison for that. Um, and then eventually that, that law expanded to cover international trade. So, you know, so if you, if you poach, you know, sharks um, in another country and then you ship the, the shark fins uh, into the U.S., you know, that's a potential Lacey Act violation. Or if you go and, and kill an elephant, um, you know, and then, and then uh, sell those tusks, that might be a Lacey Act violation. Uh, and then in 2008, like Paul said, they expanded it to include timber as well. So, if, you know, so if you, if you import timber that's in violation of another country's forestry laws, you can you can be prosecuted for that. Um, so this so this was kind of the first big timber lacy case was in 2009 with Gibson guitars. You know Gibson is that's like you know, Jimmy Jimmy Page plays a Gibson. Yeah, everybody, everybody plays a Gibson. Um, and and Gibson their off their their Nashville offices were raided because they had imported this shipment of ebony um, that that broke another country's forestry laws. Um, you know and it's kind of a controversial law in some ways because lots of you know lots of conservatives hate it right they i mean they say like it's it's ridiculous that you know a good american company like you know like like gibson would be busted for you know for violating some obscure madagascar forestry law what i mean what could be more what, what could be more un-american than that right um so gibson, you know, the uh, guitar who, of choice who, for the woefully out of compliance 
<laughs> yeah, they, you, got, you guys all played. You all played stolen, like, stolen Gibson yeah. guitars. Yeah, right? wailing on the Gibson. In your, in your, in your bebop, in your bebop high school band. So here, yeah. So here you have you have this sort of this obscure act. Well, it's not an obscure act, but it's sort of like an obscure use of this act. You've got these investigators. They've got their sort of indictment. They've sort of figured out how to put it under the law. Um, but there's technological turn in this story too, which is like an episode of Crime Scene Investigators, right? So they have to go to the lab. Um, so maybe you talk a little bit about the technological aspect that I think surprisingly kind of entered this story. So this is really courtesy of Ron Melampi. You know, Ron is he's this he's this backwoods cop, um, but he's a pretty sharp guy. And in 2012, he read this um, this magazine this magazine called Timber West Magazine, which is kind of like a it's like a forestry trade publication. And there was this, you know, there's this article in it about using, using DNA, or extracting DNA from the wood of old shipwrecks. Um, and, and Ron was like, huh, I wonder if we could do that, if we, if we could extract DNA from, from our wood here. Um, so, you know, so basically what Ron did was he, he emailed this, this lab in Singapore, um, which does these, these DNA analyses and said, hey, you know, would it be possible? Would it be possible to take a piece of wood um, that you know that has that is in Harold Cooper's shop, and match it to a piece of wood, you know, to a stump out in the forest that we know was poached, um, and it turned out that it was possible that you could you could match, you know, you could match the stolen wood with the place that it came from to prove that it was in fact stolen. Um, I'm imagining this sort of that computer generated like match, but I'm sure it didn't quite look like that. I'm sure they didn't have a fancy lab to sort of like match all of their DNA tree records against the the DNA print of the victim. But still fantastic. But they nailed it, didn't they? They nailed it a couple times, at least enough to prove enough to indict Coopers. And so that's based. Was that sort of like the nail in the in the coffin for him? Yeah, you know, it's. I mean, it's. I think they had. I think that most of the. the sort of the the testimony, right? I mean, all, all of the interviews they'd done with the with with the poaching gang was, you know, was they they'd already built a, a pretty strong case. Um, but I think that what what makes the DNA stuff really significant is not necessarily in the context of this particular case, but in the bigger picture, right? I mean, everybody, so all of the guitar companies, I mean, all of the all of the wood importers out there, are all trying to think, okay, how can we be in compliance with the Lacey Act, right? We've got this this somewhat this newish law. We're all trying to figure out how exactly it works, how we can avoid being prosecuted for breaking it. Um, you know, and DNA is is potentially a great a great technology for you know for making sure you're in lacy compliance. So you could you could imagine you know DNA testing um, you know a piece of a piece of flooring that like lumber liquidators imports from China, and then you know and then and then taking DNA from the place that it came from, you know, ten thousand miles away. And saying, oh, okay, here's a match. We know we know that this wood was legally harvested because we can prove it using DNA technology. So I think that's really the, the, that's really the significance of this of this DNA, of the DNA component of this case. You know, is that here is this fantastic technology that we could use to ensure the sustainability of lumber supply chains. Um, it's kind of a big picture thing. Yeah, no, I love that about this story because it um, it points to yeah. I guess I mean, conceivably, sometime in the future, you'd have a DNA database of all these different kinds of trees and where they come from and then you just would test it if you're sort of a lumber um uh, yeah lumber store or a furniture store or a guitar maker i guess in this sort of high-tech future world you'd, you'd be a mill operator and you'd want to scan the dna of any uh stump coming in from from some stumble bum miller's swilling meth head yeah totally this is this is like you know it's gonna be like like 
like Blade Runner someday, you know, where like it's all just, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's all just, just technologically hooked up. Is that um, a real tree or not a real tree? It doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> right, exactly. Hey, ben, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Ben, I had a, a question. A, a replicant tree. I had a question yeah, about, replicant, yeah. yeah, there you go. I had a question about, you know, lumber liquidators. You, you, you know, th this is kind of small town, small time guys that got busted here, even though it may have much broader ramifications down into the future. But I, I'm wondering how you felt about these guys at the end. Uh, you know, are these guys just kind of, should we be angry as Americans on, who care about national forests about these guys cutting trees out there and the mill owner? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a good question, Paul. I mean, I, I kind of grappled with that during the course of, of writing this story. You know, and I think, I mean, I think, I think the answer is ultimately, yeah, we should be angry, right? I mean, these are, these are public lands. Um, you know, you and, you and I own that tree. And, you know, the fact that it's, it's being cut down, um, you know, I mean, that's, that's, they're stealing from our, our pockets, basically. Um, you know, I, I think another thing, too, is that I, I mean, I had one, one kind of environmentalist that I talked to um, basically said, you know, look, like it's not necessarily the, the timber poaching that's the problem. It's the timber poaching to, to, to feed these, these meth habits, right? I mean, it, you know, it's, we all kind of understand that, that these timber communities have fallen on hard times um, for a variety of reasons. And, uh, you know, and, and that we have to create jobs in, in, in these communities somehow. And, you know, economic development is really important. Um, but it's not like it's not like the profits from these these tree thefts are going back into the community in some meaningful way, right? They're just they're just contributing to the, the to the dissemination of of meth, right? This drug that is further ravaging these communities, you know. So it's mm. like it's sort of the link mm. between between the tree and the drug that makes this even more problematic than it would be otherwise. Right, and that um, kind of makes an interesting sort of uh, negative feedback loop in a way. It sort of spreads and spreads, and, and the demand goes up and up, and, and there's no way to address this in, in from a sort of like social or economic standpoint at this point. These are This is a part of the um, you know, a broader narrative, I think, across the West, which is um, struggling rural communities and, and real people who are sort of in the, in the grips of things. Um, you know, I think that's a that's a story that we're gonna uh, keep keep up with. Um, we should say that eventually Coopers did uh, make it out of jail. The um, uh, the the tree gang, uh, Miller Justice and Mullins, they all served some time uh, and some fines. Um, but this is a story that I you know I think it's it, it keeps going. It wasn't it's not like that case prevented anything, um, or you know is going to stop stop this from going on. So it's certainly something to keep an eye on. Uh, I. Do you think we're out of time, though, for today? So um, thanks again, Ben. Yeah, thank you, Brian. And Paul. Nice to be here. Yeah, uh, if you want to learn more about this story and uh, others like it, you can visit our website at hcn.org. Uh, if you want to continue this conversation online, you can do that at kvnf.org. I'm Brian Calvert for West Obsessed, and as always, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.